Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, July the 1st, 2015, the Grexit and Charleston edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham, where it is toasty today. The sun is beaming down and the windows are shut. Uh, joined as usual by my co-host Scott Lucas, who's Professor of International Politics and the editor of discussion and commentary website EA Worldview. Hello, oh, Scott. A warm good afternoon to everybody. And we are missing the usual third part of our troika this week, Kristala uh, Yukinthu. But fear not, in her place we have a ready and able replacement in the form of Tim Horton, a reader in European politics, and there's no shortage of that going on this week. So thank you very much for being with us, Tim. Good afternoon. Our two topics this week. First, as Greece stands poised on the brink of defaulting on its sovereign debt and a messy exit from the euro, we'll be wondering aloud where on the spectrum this lies between containable disaster and continent-consuming catastrophe. Second, after a fortnight in which the United States was appalled by the murder of nine black churchgoers in South Carolina by a racist gunman, then came together mostly in admiration for President Obama's eulogy to the dead, addressing the themes of race and faith. We'll be talking about those events specifically and also their place in the generation's long saga of race in America. Banks in Greece are closed as the government imposes strict controls on financial withdrawals and transfers ahead of a referendum on Sunday in which the nation will decide whether to accept or reject the terms of the latest IMF-EU bailout offer. This comes after a protracted period of negotiation and shadowboxing between left-wing Syriza government of Alex Tsipras, elected in January to oppose further austerity, and Greece's creditors and cohabitees in the Eurozone, most especially Germany, who've made painful cuts in government spending a centrepiece of their demand at every stage since the crisis began in 2010. If Greece rejects the deal and the government has recommended a no vote, then the expected result is a messy Greek exit from the European single currency, steering the entire Eurozone into uncharted waters filled with rocks, sharks and possibly dragons. This is a moving story and we hear this morning that Cyprus may have made new compromise offer to creditors, but we'll do our best to have a sensible discussion about the topic based on the facts we have right now. So, how will the Greeks vote? Will they get as far as having a vote? Whose fault is this unholy mess? And where does this fall on the scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is the agonising death of a nation's prospects for a generation, and 10 is global apocalypse? As we clutch our British pound-denominated salaries and investments tight to our chests, let's try and get a grip on this. And to help us do it, uh, we have an additional guest for this segment, and the first additional guest in the course of this podcast, I think, uh, Satirius Zartaludis, who is a uh, lecturer in politics here at the Political Science Department, and also has the added advantage for the purpose of this item of being Greek. Uh, so he's uh, vested in this as well as interested in this. So, Satirius, like I said, it's a pretty messy situation. How did we get here? Well, let's start uh, by saying that, uh, you know, it's helpful to be Greek, but also sometimes can be quite difficult. These days is one of them. So how do we get here? Well, uh, as you said, the two parts, uh, the EU or the Troika or the institutions could not agree a deal with the Greek government. And now the Greek government, uh, in a last kind of uh, moment move, uh, they declared a referendum. Uh, so it's in a way something that was not anticipated but also something that was expected in a way. So, for instance, very few people were expecting that Syriza would reach an agreement with the EU. But few people were expecting to have a referendum. I mean, on the surface of it, this referendum seems like a reasonable thing, which is to say there's going to be this very big decision, the future of the nation for generations may be uh, shaped by it. Let's throw that over to the people who are going to have to actually eat the consequences, which is the general population. So that's the that's the surface read, but I'm guessing uh, it's a little more complicated than that. Is this referendum a good idea? Is it even a viable idea? Yeah, actually, there are a lot of people who say that maybe the referendum will be cancelled or deferred later. About whether it's a good or bad idea. On the surface, I will agree with you. Yes, it's a good idea. People should be asked. Uh, but remember that Greece has a very similar tradition to Britain, so we have a parliamentary democracy. Uh, the only time we had a referendum was about whether we want to have uh, uh, a president or a king. Another problem with this referendum is that uh, the Greek constitution explicitly, uh, explicitly forbids referenda on uh, uh, budgetary issues. So you cannot have a referendum on uh, budget policy, tax policy. So there's a big debate uh, uh, among constitutional scholars on whether this referendum is on budgetary or not issues, because basically the question is, do you accept a deal that will bring some kind of mm. me uh, finance measures? But in principle, I'm in favor of the referendum, 
But I think on the practicalities of it, mm. I think whatever the decision, I think it's it won't be like a, an outcome of, a, if you like, a serious kind of mm. debate within the Greek society. So what's, what's the mood? I mean, you're here, obviously, you're not in Greece, but you, I would imagine, have more access to Greek media and the discussion within Greece than the rest of us do. What's the mood of the country like? Is it the feeling that the government has done the best that it can, but it's in a corner because of these dark and evil forces of the creditors overseas? Is it the view that the government has engineered a crisis and this is an irresponsible and dangerous thing to do? Is it the fact that the country is divided into two camps who think each of those things and everyone's now looking daggers at each other? What's it like in Greece? Unfortunately, it's the third uh, scenario. So the country is divided. So some people say no, and you know, I don't want any more austerity. Although in my opinion, that's in a way... uh, a problematic argument to say in a way that if you say no to the creditors and you don't have austerity from the creditors and you go to the drachma, you will end up having austerity in a different way by having a currency that is not worth the same money. Uh, or, you know, now that they say the banks are closed, you may have this for like a year or something. So we, we, you may not have official austerity, but if, let's say, you cannot have access to money for like six months, I don't know how this can be understood. <laughs> yeah, I think my lifestyle would become pretty austere <laughs> if, uh, if that happened. Uh, on the other hand, we have another big problem with the Greek society, and that's why that's where most parties kind of try to kind of balance it out, and that's how Syriza won the elections. On the one hand, we have 70%, approximately 70% of Greeks who want to stay into the euro and the EU, and also we have 70 to 80% who do, want not, want, do not want austerity. I, I would not predict how they will vote. I would expect a close uh, result, and I think that's also a problem of this referendum, and I think that will backfire to the government, whatever they vote after the referendum. Uh, Syriza was elected with a mandate to renegotiate with the uh, creditors, to be tough on them, be very harsh on them, but stay in the euro. Mm. Uh, the majority of voters of Syriza want to be in the euro. So whatever Greeks will vote, yes or no, Syriza will have to end up, again, try to stay into the euro with some austerity. Mm. So I feel that if the result is divided as well, let's say 55-45, I think the government will be in a very difficult position to satisfy everybody within Greece. So, Tim, you've been following a lot of this from the, uh, the broader European angle. What's your take? Well, just a couple of things that I would, I would really want to emphasise. I mean, firstly, um, it's worth saying that this referendum, I think, the fundamental problem of Greece is that it's been badly governed for a long period of time. Um, And in a sense, it's been a missed opportunity since 2008, 2009 onwards to actually tackle underlying bad governance in Greece that's happened under under, um, parties of all different colours. And I think the blame for that, if we are to use the word blame, uh, lies with both the Greeks themselves, but also um, in terms of the other side of the negotiating table. Um, One of the most obvious areas, which is quite shocking, is when you look at the um, tax collection rates in Greece. Uh, actually, if all of the taxes were collected that should be, according to the law, mm. there would be plenty of money to pay back uh, uh, creditors and invest in public services. Um, and I think, in a sense, that's one of the... To me, that's one of the real mistakes, over, particularly over the last few months, because the very people who are likely to be hit harder by by more effective tax collection are probably not the people who would have voted for Syriza. So I could have seen a kind of coalition of interest between the international creditors and, 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 and Syriza's coming together. The second thing which you've touched on already, which I think is very striking, is that this crisis has come to a head now and, and the divisions in Greek society are quite disturbing. So last night we had the big pro-European uh, rally on the main square outside Parliament. The day before we had the the anti, uh, or the, 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 the anti bailout, uh, anti um, uh, austerity demonstration, and those two positions seem to have been heightened uh, and um, increased. And what worries me is that, that one of the problems with referenda is it forces people to choose yes or no. It actually forces mm. them one way or another. So you have two very clearly defined camps. Indeed, uh, and, and, I think, and I think that's, that's what worries me is, in a sense, whatever the outcome of this uh, referendum in, in, in Greece, one of the problems is that this will have heightened the divisions within Greek society, which mm. I don't think is, is needed. So divisions in Greek society and, and bad governance in Greek society are not going to be improved by this vote, not going to be improved by anything 
um, that has been um, discussed mm. in more recent times. And, and there are some pretty ugly forces in Greece at the moment as well. I mean, it's, aside from the left wing, uh, which is in government at the moment, Golden Dawn, we keep being told, is this incipient fascist force that could be very... Uh, uh, Indeed, could and be we, very powerful if things and we come should, to a crisis. And we should not forget the point that uh, Sotiri kind of mentioned that, of course, this is a coalition government of the of Syriza and the right, the the uh, far right grouping. Um, this is called not, independent Greeks. Yeah, this is this is not just a, a left wing grouping that's that, that, that's in government. Final point that I would just make, which I think is is one thing which we would all like to know, is what really does Tsipras want to do. Uh, that is something that's not really clear uh, to me. Um, uh, maybe that will become clearer in, in the coming days, but it's not really clear what he wants to do. Mm. Scott, you've, you've been sitting very patiently. Uh, well, just learning, learning quite a bit from Sotirios and Tim, and I guess the question I put to both of you is, okay, anticipating what might come next. A year ago, I might have seen this as an economic crisis, right? An economic crisis for Europe, because... What is the effect on the Eurozone? What is the effect in terms of financial transactions? What happens to capital movement, investment, etc.? I think, Adam, the way you put it, it's interesting. I think that risk has been priced in now. I think a lot of people move their assets away from Greece, ironically heightening the economic crisis, but protecting themselves. And so creditors will get stung. But of course, a lot of the creditors now are central institutions, not private institutions, and they can absorb that. So my question to both of you is, is, do we not have a political crisis now? And that is, if Greece was to exit the EU, to be put on the outside, do we risk this perception that it is no longer a European state, a developed economy, but it gets grouped with the other states who have not paid to the IMF, who have defaulted to the IMF? And one telling example, Somalia. Does Greece, in effect, be declared a failed state and what does that mean? Does it mean, in fact, it moves closer to Russia for support, which has very important geopolitical consequences? Does it mean it gets drawn into the specter of problems in the Balkans, which we were dealing with only a decade ago? Uh, what does it do with relations with Turkey, for example? Does it revive tensions there? So there's all kinds of knock-on, political knock-on effects. So am I being overdramatic, both from the standpoint of the government and the Greek people, about these political risks? Am I being overdramatic uh, that this is a risk for the European community? And do they, they, do they therefore pull back from the brink if they see that as a risk and find some way to keep Greece in the EU? I mean, lots of, lots of questions there, m many more than we can cover in the remaining moments of the, of the podcast. But a few points that I would make. I think, firstly, um, in terms of... It's worth saying that if, if Greece leaves... Uh, the single currency, that doesn't necessarily mean that it would leave the, the EU as a whole immediately. Uh, one of the problems is that there's no provision within the treaties to leave the euro. So quite what would happen if a country leaves the euro is, a, uh, is one for the, for the lawyers and others to, to, to debate. But clearly that would have a, a negative uh, knock-on effect in terms of the morale within, within, within the EU. Uh, I'll leave it to Sotiris to talk about the internal Greek situation. He knows that much better than me. But in terms of broader questions of geopolitics, I mean, absolutely, um, this could raise um, a whole bunch of questions. I'm not sure about the relations with Turkey. What's actually interesting is that people are even talking up after the recent elections in Turkey, the possibility of Turkey even moving back towards the EU. But that's a separate issue. Um, but I think the geopolitics in terms of especially relations with Russia and strategic issues in that region are pretty significant. Um, and um, I don't know how much to read into the fact that Tsipras has been to Moscow on a few occasions. Um, but clearly, uh, that's been part of the part of the game. At the very um, least, he's sending a signal by he's sending something a, like that to say, well, if this doesn't possible. work out, then I have options here. Indeed. Uh, so I think what we're coming into is potentially, if Greece were to leave the Eurozone, we then come into a very fluid period. And as political scientists all that we are, we know that in fluid periods, uh, agency really starts to play an important role. So it's going to be about who grasps the baton and who decides to... To shift things, but I can see things going in all sorts of different directions, both negative and positive. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, just to add on that, I think like uh, I don't think you are being uh, melodramatic, and I think one of the main kind of fear of uh, among Greeks 
and the people who say like let's vote yes in the referendum even though it will bring more austerity and we don't like it and I would say that even the more pro-European people in Greece do not want austerity I think nobody wants austerity uh, is that the, the, the slogan is like the political kind of motto is that yes we, li- we stay in Europe so they don't even mention the euro they don't even mention finance etc uh, and um, I think if Greece leaves the EU that will go against public opinion so it will involve I would say a non-democratic government either in the form of some kind of dictatorship or either in the form of some kind of, if you like, popular leader in the way of uh, some states that uh, are calling themselves like popular democracies, etc. Just a side note here that some parts of Syriza are openly calling for a socialist experiment in Greece. They have praised Cuba. They have said, well, the Soviet Union wasn't that bad after all. Uh, They have very strong links with uh, Hugo Chavez and other people in Latin America. Uh, I don't think, though, that this uh, wing of the party is the most kind of the strongest one, uh, even though it's quite like cohesive and organized and they have like their own kind of policy centers and manifestos, etc. But I would say that definitely we have a problem in in a way in Greece that if it leaves the EU, um, a big part of this kind of modernization or if you like catching up with the rest of Europe. Uh, agenda will disappear and uh, remember that Greece joined in the 80s to re-establish democracy to uh, maintain a free market economy and to kind of be part of the West like being part of the EU was part also of the West Uh, so I would probably assume that yes it will be part of the Balkans yes it will go closer to Russia and I don't know if it will become a failed state but definitely uh, unfortunately for Greece one of the key forces for modernization has been the EU we have very few people within Greece, in all parties and in all sectors of the society, left, left, center, right, that they are really pushing for strong modernization, tackling tax evasion, improving public administration. Uh, and as Tim said before, all colors, all parties, all groups have somehow been responsible for what's going on now in Greece. So for me, one of the biggest, if you like, problems for Greece will be losing some kind of anchor if you like, with uh, more developed states like Central Europe, Northern Europe, Britain, etc. Mm. I think it might, be, it might be worth noting here, and I, I make uh, a caveat before I say this, that I am by no means a, uh, a Eurosceptic in the general sense, and that's not my reflexive instinct within the context of British politics in general. But on this specific issue, it does seem like what we're seeing here is the unfolding of the consequences of an original sin, uh, which is that the, uh, the single currency seems to have been, in its initial design, uh, not up to the task of sustaining itself over the course of uh, time. What was needed, if this was to work... Um, was a fiscal and banking integration that that wasn't the political will to provide, that therefore wasn't provided, and that uh, is the only way that when situations like the current one break out, uh, you can avoid things coming to this kind of terrible head. You know, uh, Matt Iglesias wrote a very good article on Vox uh, that I was reading this morning talking about how, you know, Massachusetts, in a sense, cross-subsidizes life in Mississippi or Kentucky all the time, but that doesn't turn into this kind of political crisis because the institutions are there and the political will is there undergirding those institutions to make those kind of transfers uncontroversial because that's what's required for this kind of system. So from where we are now, it feels like there's no fixing it because all the options available are terrible. If Greece stays in under austerity, then there's terrible pain to be suffered by the population. There's no end in sight of that pain. Uh, um, Joseph Stiglitz and Paul Krugman wrote uh, pretty uh, punchy opinion pieces this week to that effect. And also the government presumably falls because they were elected to oppose a lot of this stuff. And if they were to roll out another instalment of it, I don't see what their raison d'etre is. If Greece is allowed, on the other hand, to shrug off its creditors and stay in the euro then that's obviously going to be a spur for repeat performances on the part of uh, similar forces in, uh, in larger economies. And it's not clear what interest anybody who's making the decision on the EU side would have in opening, in opening that door. And then the third course, if Greece uh, rejects austerity but leaves the euro, a lot of the things that you've been saying, uh, Satirius, unfold. And also all bets are off in terms of 
what happens next in the bigger picture, we just don't know. There'll be some kind of crashing devaluation and unknown chain of events and legal disputes about debts and the nomination of debts. So if we are talking the language of, uh, of responsibility, then there's plenty of people to get annoyed with here, I guess. I mean, one would be annoyed with, with Greece because it told a variety of untruths to get into the European single currency in the first place, or at least governments uh, of previous eras did. Um, one can get annoyed with Germany because it doesn't seem to be willing to accept its complicity in that uh, and the fact that a lot of its economic success in recent times has been in many ways the flip side of the same imbalances and, uh, and dynamics that have led to the problem in Greece. But most of all, I think, uh, if I'm going to get annoyed with people, it feels like this is another instance where some large financial institutions seem to have been up to their neck in irresponsible lending decisions, have found themselves on the hook for that, and one way or another, with relatively little harm done to them, they seem to have walked away from this process with their coffers pretty full, leaving the governments of Germany and Greece to sort this out amongst themselves while they, uh, while they cash their bonuses. Had Greece been outside the single currency, it would have the same problems that it faces today, and there might not be any incentive to try to deal with it. Uh, might sound harsh on, for someone from Greece, but that isn't. But from the standpoint... No, that, that, that was the case uh, in the 80s, for instance. Yeah. But from the standpoint of Europe, consider, in fact, the cases that haven't arisen, in part because mechanisms have developed to deal with it. I'm just back from Ireland, which has gone through a severe recession, yet has gone through restructuring, has gone through a version, if you have to use the catch-all phrase, austerity, and, in fact, is bouncing back from it. The Italian case, which we thought was going to implode a few years ago, still problems in Italy, but it has not imploded. Portugal and Spain, both considered to be difficult cases as well. So remember the real fear was that Portugal, Italy, Greece, Ireland, Spain would all go. Well, Greece is in trouble, but that's only one out of five. And I, you know, hard, hard cases make bad law and sometimes hard cases make bad politics. And so I'd hate to condemn the evolving project of the European Union and the European financial arrangements, including the euro, just on this single specific case. But we can leave this for a future chapter when we see what happens after the referendum. Indeed, I would, I would pretty much agree with, with, with Scott's position, although I do agree with you in a sense that you know, the big financial institutions always seem to be able to get away. That, that I would definitely agree with you. But I think what's interesting is if Greece were to leave the Eurozone, it seems as if the contingency plans are structured in such a way that that risk and that fear of contagion, they think anyway, I think that it could be isolated. We don't know, we will see. And the time in particular that would be worth coming back to discuss this uh, is in December at the time of the uh, Spanish general election. Spain is really going to be the key one, the key thing to, to the key country to uh, uh, follow. Mm. On that note, uh, thank you all very much. Let's draw that item to a close. Right, to our uh, now regular section in its second instalment, number of the week. Uh, Tim. You're our guest, so politesse requires that we should hand over to you to give us your uh, your story and associated numeral for the week. So thank you, Adam. Uh, I've decided to pick not a, a cardinal but an ordinal number. Uh, and it's One for a, the maths fans. Indeed. It's the 24th, uh, and uh, the reason why I picked 24th is uh, last week uh, I was on a research trip to Slovenia. Uh, I was in Ljubljana. And uh, last week, uh, the country uh, celebrated the 24th anniversary since the Declaration of Independence from Yugoslavia. And I think that that's a, a good figure to mention, uh, partly because we've just spent half an hour or so talking about how dreadful everything is and awful everything is in terms of Greece. So sometimes it's worth reminding us of other numbers which persuade us to step back and look at the progress. And if we think about the progress that a country like Slovenia has made over the course of the last 24 years, it's astonishing uh, in terms of its uh, economic performance, in terms of the fact that it has a reasonably well-functioning democratic system, it's peaceful, it's a quite a, an affluent place, it's uh, successfully integrated 
international structures like NATO and the European Union. It's indeed a member of the Eurozone and um, it's done remarkably well. So I just thought we should have that number to remind us that not all is awful in the uh, European yeah. Garden. It's not that as soon as you go east of uh, east of the borders of Poland, everything goes to hell. Okay, so enough respect, Slovenia. Oh, you got Adam. My my numbers for this week are four and five. Now the four is a bit ominous because it is the number of Supreme Court judges in the United States who voted not to intervene. Uh, against states who ban same-sex marriage. One of the four was Judge uh, Scalia, who, in the longest judicial rant in recent history, who compared his uh, fellow justices to uh, hippies who were committing judicial arson and ended with some reference to a fortune cookie that I still can't understand. But this story ends happily with the five, who are the number of Supreme Court justices who voted to uphold same-sex marriage, that it cannot be banned by any of the 50 states, and writing the lead opinion for those five in an opinion which I think holds up a bit better than condemning hippies and arsonists and fortune cookies. Not that we're in favor of arson on this podcast. Not at all. Instead, we're in favor of Judge Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, who in one of the most eloquent closing paragraphs talked about the fact that the petitioners in this case were not against the institution of marriage, that they indeed were actually even more in favor of it than others because they had had to fight so hard for it. So who are we to deny under the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, as your bonus number, their equal protection under the laws? Mm. So four and five in a story which ends happily for uh, same-sex marriage in the U.S. Yeah, I do wonder if, and uh, maybe this is just a sign of my uh, historical ignorance, but I wonder if there has ever been a more intemperate judicial figure at the top tier of the United States than Antonin Scalia. The stuff this guy writes about his colleagues is, uh, is quite amazing. And I wonder what the working dynamics must be like in that institution. Well, like you, just, you have someone who regularly, viciously insults you, and not just in a way that says, you know, you have opinions and we, you know, intelligent people can disagree. The way he writes these opinions basically suggests that the people who are on the other side aren't fit to be, to be judges. Well, since uh, I deliberately mispronounced his name when I introduced the piece, uh, I should say that perhaps Justice Scalia... Uh, rather than condemning him, let's just give him the positive of a trip to Slovenia where he can see a country which used to be uh, one of those communist states and how, in fact, they are progressing and functioning not by condemning others who are seeking rights as being crazed left-wingers or even communist, but actually upholding the fact that you can actually press for having a decent, normal human relationship and not be called immoral. Here's to that. Well, my number of the week is 98 I got there by deducting 94 from 192, uh, which is the fall in the number of drilling rigs that are active in North Dakota between 2014 and 2015, which I found interesting. And as a bonus number, we can uh, say that the reason for this is the number 60, which is the number of dollars you need to pay for a barrel of oil. Because we've all heard an awful lot over the course of the last recent while about the boom uh, in oil production domestically within the United States that's taking place, uh, largely not because of advancing technology per se, but simply because uh, it became worthwhile to extract a whole bunch of oil that could have been expensively extracted uh, for some time when the oil price was very high. And that oil price, partly because of decisions being made in, in, in the Middle East deliberately to head this off uh, in Saudi Arabia, for example, has been tumbling over the course of the last few years. So it was a very good article uh, by Mara Von Els, A North Dakota Oil Boom Goes Bust uh, in the Atlantic's current edition, which is, uh, which is interesting to read, uh, about this boom which was made viable by rising global oil prices and this flood of people who came to North Dakota, not a place that's accustomed to having floods of people for any reason, uh, in order to exploit the boom. And now a lot of those people are making their calculations about whether to wait out this and hope that it all comes back or whether or not the uh, the American oil boom in North Dakota at least uh, uh, seems to have burnt bright but briefly, uh, as I suppose oil is probably want to do uh, if you said like to it, which we wouldn't recommend. Onward. On June 17th, a pastor and eight of his congregation were murdered in a mass shooting at a black church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina, apparently by a 21-year-old white man motivated by white nationalist ideology. 
In the week that followed, the nation emerged from an initial period of shock to construct a surprisingly widespread consensus that the United States needed to do more to directly confront the continuing reality of racial antagonism in American society, and more concretely, that the South should reconsider its attachment to the Confederate battle flag, um, a symbol of quote-unquote heritage widely displayed in the South, including at the South Carolina State House, but one strongly associated with both slavery and later with reactionary opposition to black civil rights. At week's end, President Obama eulogized the dead pastor Clementa Pinckney in a speech that earned high praise both for style and for content. So, race, religion, guns, partisan politics, pretty much all the big issues in one big mixing pot, and yet somehow the result seems to have been more positive than negative for American politics, at least so far. Would you agree with that, Scott? You're a, you're a man of the South uh, by origin. How, uh, how much movement do you think there really has been on the Confederate flag and these racial issues over the course of the last couple of weeks, and how important is that? Adam, I'd love to join you in saying we're at a turning point, and good Lord, 150 years after the end of the Civil War, it's onward as a united country. Now, and, and I... I, I see very little that would advance out of this for two reasons. And I think the first is before you get to the question of race, it gets back to the question of guns. I can remember talking to media outlets a couple years ago about a massacre of more than 20 children and teachers in Sandy Hook up in New Jersey. And they said, how oh, is it going to lead to sweeping legislation to deal with guns, if not all-out gun control, at least registration, control of the supply of handguns? And I said, no. And unfortunately, I was right. The federal government made token efforts, we'll investigate it, yada, 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 yada. And of course, when facing political opposition to do anything substantive about the outrageous number of guns that are in private hands in the U.S. and the outrageous number, therefore, of thousands of deaths caused by those guns, nothing. Now, that's the first thing that happens. What gave this case the resonance you're talking about, of course, is the, uh, is the racial dynamics. Um, the fact that it was a white teenager, deluded white teenager, committing a hate crime killing in cold blood, premeditation, nine African-American worshipers at a very historic church in South Carolina. And so it drags in all those questions then about what is associated with South Carolina in the South, which is the Confederate flag, which is the, the hangovers, the trappings of uh, going all the way back to this before the Civil War, but then afterwards up until the Civil Rights period. Here's my problem. I'm not in favor of the Confederate flag. I hope my parents don't listen to this podcast in saying that, though, because they live in Georgia, which also has the Confederate flag as the backdrop of it. It's the main part of its state flag. Uh, I grew up in Alabama, where there are Confederate flags flying in many places. And while my parents would not fly the Confederate flag, because that's pretty working class to do that, they would say, why is anyone telling people what to do in terms of Southern heritage, Southern culture, etc.? So this issue of race is going to get diverted into the symbols of Southern culture, and you're going to get a states' right issue versus the federal government, yada, 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 yada. And it's not going to touch the question of that this attack by a white teenager could have taken place on African Americans in another part of the United States, and it still would have meant there are racial issues which are not just connected with the Civil War and being from the South. And if you do not recognize that, if you do not recognize that people commit these crimes out of anger and frustration because there are poor whites who are upset just as they and will commit crimes against African Americans, just as there are people who are frustrated by other economic and social slights and turn to violence, if you don't deal with that, you're just dealing with the surface of what's happening. I hope the Confederate flag comes down, but I hope that we then don't just simply walk away from the issue and say, Wow, that certainly solved that one, because not necessarily in a South Carolina, but possibly in a Missouri, where we were talking about racial issues only a few months ago, or in a Massachusetts, where there have been racial issues around discrimination for decades, we're going to have some other instance that's going to come up that has nothing to do with the old stars and bars of the uh, U.S. South. Hmm. I mean, it's, uh, it's a funny one, because I feel when I hear this debate, uh, take the structure of is the Confederate flag part of Southern heritage versus is the Confederate flag a, a symbol of racism, racial hierarchy, uh, etc. That it's a strange way of looking at it because the answer is that it's both. 
because a large part of the heritage of that region is ridden through with the institutions of racial hierarchy that were the, the single most binding point between those states at a particular time in history. The reason the South is conceived of as precisely in our minds as a, as, as a distinct region is because of the Civil War, which in turn, it's very hard, uh, uh, I think, to stretch your interpretive faculties to say was about anything other than the institution of slavery. I mean, it was about states' rights, yes, but what did the states want those rights in order to do? They wanted them in order to preserve uh, the institution of slavery. And one of the most interesting parts of President Obama's speech that, that, that I liked was where he basically laid on the line the idea that one can have respect for the bravery of individual soldiers who fought in the Civil War, one can have respect for um, many of the officers who may have displayed great competence in the course of that war, one can express respect for many other unrelated aspects of the South culture, but one really ought to look clearly in the face the fact that the cause for which they were fighting was wrong, the cause for which they were fighting was slavery, and a lot of the continuing uh, cultural value and baggage that's associated with these symbols today is yes very much stemming from a proud attachment to those uh, to, the, to those historical events and the individuals from whom many current southerners are descended who fought in them, but it's undeniably bound up with a kind of reactionary uh, hostility to the changes that unfolded as a result of that conflict, the abolition of slavery, obviously, but also uh, the civil rights era in the 1960s. You know, for example, one of the facts that we've learned in the course of these recent discussions is that North Carolina State House didn't have the Confederate battle flag over it all the time since 1865. They put it up there during the 1960s as what I would uh, challenge anyone to argue successfully wasn't supposed to be a statement about the unfolding trends of uh, civil rights and racial equality, which they were very much opposed to. But what was striking was the, to me was the, the feeling that it was radical for the president to say something like, like that, or at least say it in that way, that the cause of the South in the Civil War was slavery and that that cause was wrong. And uh, that shouldn't, it seems to me, be a terribly radical thing to say, but it felt like it probably was for some people. And I don't know if it's going to prove to be a moment frozen in time and we won't find someone saying it in that way again, or if this is some kind of dam that's broken now and there can be a more explicit discussion of the heritage and legacy of the, of the South in a way that, in a clear-eyed way, deals with that part of it. But, Adam, even in saying that it's not that radical a statement, I could actually come back to you and say, well, no, it, it is provocative because many people in the South, I suspect, descended from people who never owned slaves, descended from people who were too poor to even have slaves, who quite often have remained lower or lower middle class. A lot of those folks would not say, I fly the Confederate flag or I celebrate the Civil War because I celebrate slavery. They say, I celebrate it because I'm attached to this state, to this area, to this land. And we were fighting against people who wanted to take this over, the North. And to simply come in and say, well, you're being racist about that. And I understand that that's bound up with what was a racial system. But you're not going to swing people by coming into their faces and simply saying that. I mean, that's just the first thing. That's why... At the University of Mississippi, which is supposed to be a liberal oasis in the South, you know, in Oxford, Mississippi, their mascot for their athletics team is General Robert E. Lee, or someone, I should say, dressed up as General Robert E. Lee, not the actual general. <laughs> I was say, that must be quite a sight. <laughs> yeah. And he comes charging in, carrying a Confederate battle flag, right, before football match. Now, you're going to go in and say, look, we're going to take that away from you. It's like, right? that you have a cultural issue that's there. But that brings me to my second point. Why does that keep cultural issue keep coming up and getting replayed? It's getting replayed because it's the easy out. And even Obama's speech was the easy out on the hard issues, which is on race. Now, let's, let's look at this. Go rewind this before this happened. Since Obama became president in 2009, we've had serious issues regarding continued income disparities, which intercut, intersect with racial lines. 
-hmm. Not just questions of African Americans. We've got questions of other ethnic communities as well, treatments of Hispanic communities, questions like immigration. Since 2009, we've had a series of incidents regarding the treatment of African Americans by white institutions, especially police forces. And so the cases before now, Michael Brown getting shot in Ferguson, Missouri last summer, the death by strangulation of Eric, or claimed death by strangulation or a heart attack induced by strangulation of Eric Garner in New York, the shooting death of a young African-American man unarmed just a few miles in Charleston from where this incident took place. People look at those racial issues, the reactions to them, and it's like, folks, you're not dealing with this tension here. You're not dealing with this. And of course, the point here is, is that every time you have one of these incidents, it throws up the image of white versus black, even if it's bound up with wider issues, economic issues and social issues, mm -hmm. and you never get beyond it. The biggest probably racial divide that was illustrated on American streets more than 20 years ago, or I should say one of the biggest in recent history more than 20 years ago, was the Los Angeles riots. Not in the South, not over a Confederate flag, not over a, a, a white neo-Nazi but over the treatment of an African-American man by white policemen and then the failure of the judicial system to deal with that leading to that unrest. More than 20 years later on, how far have we moved from L.A.? How far have we really moved from L.A.? So that's the big, broad question. And I love Obama as an orator. I love him as an orator. But man, when it comes to actually saying things have changed or delivering in practical terms, oratory is not going to do it on its own. Two issues which I, I, I totally agree with. One, that we have to see that race is a problem in the U.S., not just in the South, but beyond the South. That's very, very clear. What's very striking, having lived uh, in, in, in even sort of liberal oases like, uh, like Massachusetts, what's striking is, is even cities and towns there, there is clear racial dis uh, uh, segregation. Um, and it's, of course, linked in with the key point that, that Scott made, which I think is crucial, is about inequalities. And what's worrying is if you look at some of the research that's done, um, there was a, there's a new book by Robert Putnam out about kind of inequalities in the U.S. And although um, I read a very critical uh, analysis of it in the New York Review of Books, putting that to one side, um, what Putnam is really suggesting is that these inequalities are getting worse. And if these inequalities are getting worse, then it's suggesting that actually, actually maybe the racial issues are getting worse as well. So that's worrying in terms of how this is going to be, how this is going to be, um, how this is going to be tackled over a longer period of time. So, yeah, I would just underline those 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 two points of, uh, of Scott's and actually say what's required really is 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 quite a significant change, both of mindset, but also actually of socioeconomic policy in order to tackle these problems. Yeah, I, I don't know if, uh, if either of you guys heard uh, uh, Barack Obama's interview on uh, the WTF podcast with, with Mark Maron, uh, which was very interesting. I mean, it, it got a lot of headlines because he uh, uh, used the N-word. He can do that. I certainly can't on his podcast. Um, uh, in order to make, in the service of making a point about um, uh, the development of racial equality and so, and so on. I think is the broader argument in which he located uh, that headline-grabbing moment was quite uh, insightful, I thought. I mean, he, he, there was two parts to it, I suppose. One, he said that it is important to acknowledge that there has been significant improvement in the, in the racial dynamics of American society. You know, if you go back from today to the 1980s, if you go back in turn from the 1980s to the 1950s, uh, what he said was he encounters people all the time who say to him, Nothing's changed. It's exactly the same. Uh, you know, why do we even bother? And he says that he just doesn't have patience with that argument. That concretely, if you look at uh, social discourse, if you look at economic opportunities, if you look at um, uh, the plight of the black population in the United States, there has been a steady progressive advance. However, there is certainly no confusion to be had between that steady progressive advance and having arrived at the destination of perfect equality or everything being sorted out and in a sense the national conversation about race has had to move between stages I think as a result of some of that progress because where we've arrived at now a lot of the overt uh, direct badged and proud racism and racial hierarchy is 
very hard to defend. It, it occurs much more rarely. Um, you still get it. I mean, go on a YouTube comments uh, thread and you will find a racial epithet being hurled within the first two, even if the video is like a, a Disney cartoon clip. It's, you know, there, there is still explicit uh, vocal racism in American society, but it's not uh, uh, acceptable in most circles and most institutions, at least officially, are strongly opposed to it. However, what does definitely continue to exist is uh, a a lot of the economic legacy that came from that inequality that the economic circumstances of people who are uh, descended from the institution of slavery is obviously going to be disadvantaged and secondly even aside from that because class and race are not the same and some of the issues that are faced today are still racial issues rather than just class issues under a different uh, under a different lens um, a lot of it has become more subtle and more nuanced there are a lot of issues to do with unconscious bias uh, to do with uh, institutional structures that indirectly exclude people indirectly disadvantage people based upon things that are strongly correlated with race but that don't have the same overtly racist quality and that was where Obama's use of the n-word came in where he said that just because people don't feel comfortable using the word the n-word in public settings anymore that doesn't mean that uh, the issue of racial equality is not still a very real absence in American life politeness um, in the way people explicitly talk and think about race is not the same thing as dissolving the problem of racial inequality uh, and that point uh, struck me as true and in a way I think that is a, an improvement I feel he, Obama in his speech uh, at the funeral said that he didn't think that you know, we needed another national conversation about race because, you know, kind of tired of that cliche. But I do think maybe it's just the circles I uh, tune into it through, but that the quality of the national conversation about race has been improving over recent years because there is more and more discussion of, of it in those terms as the continuing legacy of racial inequality via a number of uh, institutional and indirect factors rather than uh, confusing getting rid of explicit racism with confusing getting with getting rid of uh, racial inequality overall i mean it's worth it's worth saying in a more positive spin i mean one of the things that struck me when i uh, traveled through the south a couple of summers ago was to go to places like birmingham alabama uh, to go to the rosa parks uh, museum uh, to see where martin luther king uh, lived and where he preached uh, and you know the church being so close to the the, the, the state capital where there's still um, where still the, the confederate flag you can see it and in a sense one of the most striking aspects of that um, is the fact that uh, within a lifetime I, mean, we, we, I was in the, the, the church in uh, where Martin Luther King preached and there was a, a an elderly white guy there who actually said he heard Martin Luther King preach and he'd come back and he brought some friends and it just reminds you that actually it's not that long ago so in some sense you know we're all probably of a similar sort of view on uh, on this thing in terms of what we would like to see and perhaps we should say okay things aren't all the way that we would like them to be but there's been significant progress over a longer period of time I think what would be interesting I mean one of the more disturbing aspects is this was a very young guy who committed this 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 crime and maybe you know the attitudes to some extent if you think about attitudes of race in this country you know i can mm. it's terribly anecdotal but i remember talking to my, my 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 grandfather just before he died and i was quite taken aback by some of the language that he used to describe people from different parts of the world we wouldn't hear that now it wouldn't be used in that kind of way now so maybe maybe things are moving in the right direction and perhaps rather than focusing on the fact that the glass is not full yet we should emphasize that over the last 40 odd years at least the glass has been filled to some extent hmm. and it's important that we continue to fill it at the same time acknowledging indeed that. we should never we should never be complacent yeah. you have to keep pushing hmm. well let me respond yes to y'all and to president obama maybe with a comparison which i hope will be apt in this week where we talk about the advance in terms of same-sex marriage in the u.s and that is i i think i knew that I felt that attitudes towards gays and lesbians were changing at the state, you know, at the top end. When you could have a television program just over 15 years ago, Will and Grace, which featured, you know, an openly gay character, and he was not camp. He got overexcited at times, but he wasn't camp. It was like, okay, fine. This is just part of, of life. These are characters, you know, and, and Ellen DeGeneres, now a talk show host, had a series where she actually came out. Mm -hmm. So now the 
for many in the U.S., the idea of, of their friends being gay or lesbian, it's fine, no big deal. It's just, a, you know, that's just their choice. That's the way they live their lives. And I think the Supreme Court decision in the past week sort of advances this at a judicial level, reinforcing that social shift. But here's the difference. As far as I know, gays and lesbians don't live in segregated areas in the United States where it's like, although it's not legal segregation, you mark it out and say, well, the straights are over here and the gays and lesbians, they go to school pretty much over here and this is where their church is and this is where they tend to, to congregate. So for all the Oprahs at the top ends and Jay-Z's and Beyonce's and sporting figures, you know, Michael Jordan 20 years ago, superstars now, for all of that, the idea that we have racial figures that we hold up, at the top end of American society, be real. There are large sections of the U.S. that are segregated. Ever since I was a boy, uh, my family not you know have lived in segregated areas of the South. Not legally, that's just where they happen to wind up and live. There are many African Americans who have lived only in segregated areas in the United States. The attack in Charleston, quick reminder, God be honest, wasn't in a historically mixed church. It still to this day is seen as an African American church. Once you can start seeing space in the United States not being as racially defined, where housing is not racially defined, education is not racially defined, healthcare is not racially defined, then you're making real progress. Mm. But that's the tough thing that lies behind Obama's rightly made point, but to my mind, slightly two-dimensional one. Mm. Well, we're looking good on TV. We must be talking about it in a much better way than we were 50 years ago. Mm. And uh, uh, if anyone wants to follow up on that theme, the article I would most recommend to them is one by Tarnisi Coates in uh, uh, The Atlantic. Uh, I don't know if it was over a year ago now, but it was circa a year, called The Case for Reparations. Uh, it's uh, he, He's won various awards for it. I think it was described as magisterial in, in some circles, but in which he discusses the way in which some of those trends that you're talking about, uh, segregation by residential district, etc., are the product of very explicit public policy uh, at a variety of times in the post-slavery period when uh, attitudes that were not within a million miles of what we would uh, of what we would regard as acceptable today prevailed and they created a legacy of segregation and they created a legacy of uh, for example non non property ownership which is one of the major ways through which wealth has been accumulated and and, and, and sustained in, in other population groups over the course of a period of decades so that now within the black population, a whole variety of social problems are manifest um, for which uh, the widespread opinion seems to be in many circles, the black population is itself responsible, whereas in fact it is the direct result of conscious social policy to create living environments, create a lack of opportunity and a, a two-tier system in, across the board of important service areas that are... Um, can only result in uh, some of the kinds of problems that uh, that are the signature of race relations in the United States today. Okay, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Adam Quinn, and you can find me at Adam James Quinn on Twitter, or you can also find me on Facebook, where my voluminous, some might say, compulsive output can be followed. Uh, Scott, you've been my co-host. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, I can be contacted on Scott Lucas underscore EA. And just to reinforce the EA, that uh, the partner site of Political Worldview, EA Worldview, will be featuring this uh, podcast for everyone to hear and to share amongst friends. That's it. Where can people find you should they be disposed to do it? So uh, my, my Twitter is at Horton Tim, which is H A U G H T O N. T-I-M. Okay, I've been Adam Quinn, our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We hope you're back in a couple of weeks' time, and we hope you will be too.